This is Andrea Buchanan. And I'm Allison Kulo. Welcome to Mountain Money. Um, so the UAW has been on a targeted strike against the, the Detroit three automakers since September 15th. And as of October 6th, the number of UAW members on strike from their big three jobs stood at 25,000 after a gradual climb, meaning that one in six of the union's nearly 150,000 auto workers were on the picket lines instead of going to work. According to the UAW website, the stand-up strike is our generation's answer to the movement that built our union, the sit-down strikes of 1937. Now, Merrick F. Masters, who's just joined us, is a professor of business in the Department of Management and Information Systems at the Mike Illich School of Business at Wayne State University. Merrick's research and teaching interests lie in negotiations and conflict resolution, unions, business, and labor political action. Merrick has published four books, including the UAW and Iconic Union Falls and Scandal in 2021. He joins us this morning to share insights into the current UAW strike. Welcome, Merrick. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yes, absolutely. So what are the origins of this current UAW strike? What are, I, I'm curious what they're getting paid and what are they asking for? Well, the average auto worker across the three company makes about 30 dollars an hour uh, there's variation in that depending upon the status of the worker whether they're full-time temporary and the number of years that they have worked for the company and all of those are critical issues under discussion but the really the issues that divide the parties at this point in time include retirement security wages although they've narrowed the gap in terms of their difference in terms of how far apart they are on wages and also <clears throat> cost of living allowance and the conversion of temporary employees to full-time employees, which has significant increase implications for wage levels because temporary employees are paid much less than full-time employees. There's also another issue, which is a uh, thorny one that presents its own legal problems, and that is whether to cover the joint ventures uh, that produce battery plants that the companies have entered into with foreign-based companies under the National Master Agreement. I might note a footnote, an interesting development just occurred within the past few moments in that the UAW expanded the strike and they struck a very, very profitable and important plant at Stellantis in Sterling Heights, Michigan, that's responsible for its production of the Ram vehicle. And it, it constitutes about 16% uh, of the overall production at Stellantis during the first eight months of this year, and 6,800 workers. We had mentioned just in the intro about the stand-up strike and that it's a new approach to striking. So it sounds like the Stellantis is that, ex you know, what, what you're explaining is the expansion of this. Can you talk a little bit about this new approach um, and is it working? Well, so far it has been. What the union has succeeded in doing, simply put, is it succeeded in forcing the companies to compete against each other and also in the process of negotiating its forced each one of them to bargain against itself. So what the union has done is basically set these periodic deadlines and say, we're gonna announce a strike. And most recently they've adopted a variant that, of that and saying that we're, gonna, we're going to have 
unannounced strikes, such as the one this morning at the Sterling Heights plants, and they wait for the companies to make concessions. And when the companies make concessions, they pocket those concessions and don't make counter-concessions. So the companies have made many offers, and each of them has brought forward additional concessions to the union, and the union is sitting back and waiting for them to make additional concessions. And at this point in time, they've limited the impact. This brings the number of strikers to about 40,000 across the big three, which is almost the equivalent of the size of the total hourly workforce at Stellantis, although not all the strikers are obviously at Stellantis. But it gives the union leverage to minimize the impact upon the companies, to minimize the impact upon its membership in the drain. But now that the strike is entering its six-week, pressure is mounting for them to get this thing over with and to ratchet up the pressure so that they can get the maximum amount of concessions from the companies before they reach any tentative agreement with any one of them. Oh, that's very interesting. I was curious: are there are there workers that are working under like the 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 expired agreement, and and if so, what happens to these workers in the eyes of their? Well, they are they are working under the expired agreement, and what happens is that the company can't really change the terms and conditions of work. If they do, uh, the union can grieve that. And also, they're not bound by um, no lockout, no strike agreements. So the union can can strike at various sites at will. And that's what it's done. It really has taken the initiative, thrown the companies off balance. And when you combine that with a very aggressive media relations campaign that they've waged, they've dominated the narrative. They put the companies on the defensive. They put them on the defensive about executive compensation, the high level of compensation that each of their CEOs has gotten and the 40% increase across the three of them over the past four or five years and said, basically, what we're asking for is justice in this and we're also asking for a fair and just transition to electrical vehicles we're concerned about the loss of jobs that may result from that transition and also the declining profitability of the companies therein so while we have some people you know working uh they're continuing to work at the manufacturing plant, but they're not working underneath an existing contract. We also are hearing of uh, these companies furloughing a significant number of employees within the last few weeks. Will these jobs come back once a a contract is negotiated? Well, I mean, that will depend upon how severe the impact of the strike is on the companies. Obviously, if you can envision a scenario in which the strikes might continue to multiply and the impact would be more severe and the financial hardship imposed on the companies would be greater and that would necessitate them making permanent layoffs. So some of them could not be brought back under that scenario. But at this point in time, I think most of them would be brought back. There have been about 7,000 and the companies are literally now announcing additional layoffs on a daily basis because the last two strikes have had very impactful effects on Ford and Stellantis. Um, and over time, all of these strikes compound in terms of their impact. 
what the hope is that this strategy of limited strikes will uh, enable the impact on the companies to be minimal compared to what it could have been if they had gone on a company-wide basis. You had mentioned uh, the EV production and that being sort of a, a fear, I guess, for lack of a better word, in these the the workers saying, you know, one day we may not have a job. What? what tell us what the transition looks like uh, for EV production well, the and why workers are worried. Transition is going to be very difficult. You know, two of the companies have already announced that they're delaying production uh, goals in electrical vehicles. General Motors um, only in the first half of this year sold only 2.8% of its vehicle sales were electrical vehicles. And it wants to be a major player on the international scene, and it requires a huge investment. The three companies have committed to invest about $120 billion between now and the year 2026 in electrical vehicles. And what they find is that demand is somewhat problematic. It's not growing as fast because of the price of the vehicles, the apprehension about their dependability and serviceability, et cetera. So um, one of the frequent refrains you hear on the strike line is that the auto workers can't even afford to buy some of the vehicles produced by the companies, particularly the electrical vehicles. So until these things are brought into more perspective where workers can afford them and a growing share of the population can afford them and you can get volume up, you're, they're going to face these challenges. And they, they want a path to where workers aren't going to be displaced. And if they are, they're going to be well treated. You know, speaking of electric vehicles, um, Bill Ford, executive chair of the Ford Motor Company, warned last week that the ongoing targeted UAW strike against Ford GM Stellantis is hurting them against their non-union competitors. Can you talk a little bit about these non-union competitors? Because if, if we've got the three big automakers saying that they're going to maybe ratchet back production of EV, yet they want to be, uh, you know, competitive in the marketplace, how does that work? Well, you know, Tesla's having its own difficulties. Its Cybertruck isn't going as well as it had hoped. Its market share is declining. Its profitability is eroding. And it's going to be a risky proposition for some investors going forward because of its volatility. But yet I think the future is electric. It's just a question of how rapidly this transition takes place and what is done with displaced workers to the extent that that occurs and also the extent to which american-based companies only of which there are two Stellantis isn't one of them um you have gm and ford are able to pick up uh, lift in terms of dominating the electric vehicle scheme in the u.s and there's a lot of competition these foreign transplants so to speak and other foreign-based companies that produce batteries have their own initiatives in electrical vehicle production in the United States and globally. And the United States is really behind Europe and China in this effort and doesn't have the resource base to do it on, on its own, and these companies don't have the capital to do it on their own. Just, I mean, just out of curiosity, is is Tesla and Elon Musk competitive in his in his wages? And I know he's super vocally anti-union. So, 
What does he pay his workers? Does he do? Does well, he do okay? the, the hourly cost uh, right now for a typical auto worker across the three big three companies, Galantis, Ford, and GM, is about sixty-five dollars. For um, Tesla, it's between forty-five and fifty dollars. Now that hourly cost includes wages and benefits. So Tesla has a competitive advantage. It also has a competitive advantage in terms of not having a union that has more flexibility in how it manages its workforce and the type of workers it can hire. For example, if you're under a UAW contract, there are limits on hiring temporary workers. There are requirements in terms of how much you have to pay them, when they can be transitioned to full-time employment and other things in terms of job classifications that you may not find in other non-union companies like Tesla. You've been listening to Mountain Money, and we've been speaking with Merrick Masters. He's a professor of business in the Department of Management and Information System at the Mike Illard School of Business at Wayne State. Professor Masters, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Mountain Money. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, and have a nice day. Well, in the studio, we are joined by Kimberly Flores. She is the owner and founder and everything of a beautiful <laughs> store called Fulfilled. It's a zero waste store and refill shop located in Park City. And it was named Sustainable Tourism Grant winner for its project aimed at transitioning Park City hotels and lodging facilities to refillable toiletries. This grant will support Fulfilled in developing a sellable business model and Park City pilot program. Join us to talk about grant, rebranding, new business partner, and more is Kimberly Flores, owner of Fulfilled. Hello. Hi, Hi ladies. Hi. It's so nice to see the two of you. you. Thanks so much for having me and Paige on. Yes. And so, yes, we also have um, Paige Garrity joining us via phone. Paige, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So let's kick it off. Can you let our listeners know what is Fulfilled and what led you to starting the store? Sure. So Fulfilled, as you mentioned, is a zero waste store and refill shop. Um, a lot of people know what that is. They're coming around to the idea of living a life with less plastics. So what we offer our customers is to refill their household cleaning and personal care products so they can stop buying their trash and start getting clean, eco-friendly goods without all the plastic. So Fulfilled has a new partner and it is rebranding why don't you take us through some of those changes that you're going through sure uh, and i think i'll let paige take this one actually all right oh gosh the, the pressure is on <laughs> so, yeah um you know i mean if you know kim you know that she has a beautiful gift for attracting authentic community and and that was clear to me the first time that i visited the store uh I really just began uh, visiting Fulfilled as a curious consumer, kind of wondering what this new concept was and, and really excited um, to see something like this in our local market. And eventually just going in there enough and getting to know Kim, uh, it led to me becoming a consigner in the store. I was kind of dipping my toes into a new idea for retail that had been ruminating in me since I was pregnant with my daughter in 2021. and. Um, yeah, I just kind of got more and more involved little by little as Kim and I developed a relationship and I have about 20 years of experience in retail. So um, my passion runs really deep for seeing women succeed and 
as our relationship grew, I just kind of started to offer help here and there and eventually began consulting uh, for uh, Fulfilled. And um, by the end of our contract, Kimberly and I are just, we knew that we didn't want to build our business separately. We thought, gosh, we're doing so many of this. We have so much of the same mission and the same vision. Like, how could we, how could we bring this together and, and show the community what it really is to collaborate rather than compete with each other and, and build this vision alongside one another. So that's kind of how I jumped into this little chapter, but yeah, <laughs> it's I mean, kind of fun. We're fulfilled is so lucky to have Paige. Um, it, it has been a beautiful oh. partnership. And as she mentioned, we were kind of building very similar businesses with the same mission. And we said we can get so much more done and touch so many more lives if we do this together. Um, I mentioned just the refill portion of fulfilled, but really we're, we're a sustainable lifestyle store. So we're showing people all the ways that they can live sustainably. Sure, we have the 45 different household cleaning and personal care products, but then we have 250 other products to help you live a more sustainable life. So we reduce, reuse, and refill. Talked a little bit about reducing um, uh, products. And our reuse section, we have Summit County's only used bookstore as well as um, pre-loved clothing. So we're trying, again, to show people all the ways that they can make small swaps in their life that can really make a large difference when we work together um, as a whole community. I love that pre-loved clothing. Yes. <laughs> a, I love that. Um, so our, our pre-loved um, you know, refill, reuse, all the, all these things are they considered to be, some people think, oh, they're so much more expensive. I can't spend that money. I can get my downy dishwashing soap for a dollar twenty-five right. at Smith's plus right. a coupon, you know? So how did, how do you write that for people that are on a budget? Um, first, there's several ways that we can tackle this. Um, number one, it is a particular consumer. It is someone that not only wants to reduce their impact on the environment, but someone that's looking for a non-toxic alternative to things that they already carry in their home. So first things first, don't use dryer sheets, everyone. <laughs> I'll let you do your own homework. But, but secondly, um, the ROI is seen very quickly. So if I sell someone a package of unpaper towels, yes, it's an um, upfront cost of $38, but you might, depending on how many paper towels you use at home, you might see your ROI in three months and then you'll have these paper towels for over a year. So you could be saving technically $300 depending on your usage of that thing. Same thing with our sustainable, our other sustainable, they are, the idea is that they'd last a little longer. So not only are they sustainably made, but the end of life is sustainable as well. So we use natural products that can break down in your compost for, for many of our, of our sustainable products. Um, as far as the refills go, they're really quite cost comparable. So if you're using Mrs. Myers at home, then we will be the same price point per ounce. And so again, what they do is they have some sort of container. Correct. That they bring into your store. And does it have to be your container? No, or? absolutely not. We do have beautiful glass bottles for sale, but you can bring in your own Tide bottle, your old Perel uh, hand sanitizer, anything that you have. Again, our main mission is to help you reduce your waste. So the most zero waste thing you can do is use what you already have. So as long as it's clean and dry, we'll weigh it and fill it for you. So you only pay for the product you need. That's so cool. Um, so you got this amazing grant. We did. It's the Sustainable Tourism Grant. We hear a lot about sustainable tourism here in this station. So I know. Us. I heard Dan just on with the mm -hmm. chamber, and we are just so thrilled. Oh, my gosh. We did. We applied for the Sustainable Tourism Grant with our... Um, 
uh, refill pilot project. This has kind of been something that's been on a lot of people's minds in the community as we try to transition to a net zero or zero waste community. And being that we are such a tourist town, um, we're trying to get rid of those hundreds of thousands of single-use plastic toiletry bottles. And what best way to do it? We have a refillery in town, so so let's apply to be part of the solution. And I'm so thrilled um, that the committee who who assigned these um, uh, grants saw saw the opportunity in this. Um, and I didn't do it. We didn't do it alone. Um, we were working with Recycle Utah as well as. Um, um, uh, Park City Lodging is a uh, contributor uh, on this project. They are offering their um, advice and insights because they've been refilling for some time and they've si in, in just their first two years, I think they saved something like 55,000 single-use bottles um, from the landfill through a refill project. So they're kind of consulting on this project. We also have uh, Celia with the city um, offering her insights. And at the end of this, we'll end up with a um, like best practices toolkit that green businesses will have a chance to get their hands on so they can implement these refill practices um, at their home. So that's one deliverable, this this um, toolkit, and then also this three-month pilot program that we're working on. So ideally, I hope someone's out there listening. We may have one property management company who are interested in taking part in this pilot, but we're still looking for a small boutique hotel or another property management company to work with us um, as we um, try to unroll and uh, roll out rather uh, this pilot program with regards to the sustainable tourism grant <clears throat> I know at times it can be daunting for like a business to see mm. something like that come out but it can be so helpful for you and it sounds like you're making a lot of relationships within the community with that did the grant specifically say we want to transition lodging you know away from single-use products or was it hey do you have an idea we'd love to hear it Meaning, did the grant ask specifically? Yeah. No, this was our project idea. Okay. So we said, this is this is our expertise, but also I could use a little help in how do I launch a business to business? Uh, right now I'm business to consumer, but really if I want to make an impact in this community, I mean, boy, do we start with our Airbnbs? Do we start with our hotels? And some of like Montage already has a refill, um, you know, a, a, pi a project in their hotels. They no longer have a single use bottles. Um, but it's like, how best can we do this? How can we make it cost effective? But also can we make it lasting so what what are the what policies and procedures do we need in place so that can this can sustain itself yeah, it and seems like you know a lot of hotels or places to stay in the last few years you see it you know they mm -hmm. say don't use your towel put it hang it up and mm -hmm. and then the things are in the showers now without the right the single things you want to take mm -hmm. with you home right you know, right <laughs> yeah yeah so it's good I mean some places have already started it and, and there's so many more that haven't so we're trying good. to get over those hurdles of you know what what's holding you up do you think it's it's more expensive is it the logistics and we want to be that partner in sustainability for them and be like we can handle it all we'll take care of it for you and here's how we're going to do it um, because it's nice to have not only th these businesses be able to say we're using a local business but we're also using a, a business that that identifies with our values of being eco-friendly and and clean and non-toxic mm -hmm. so higher end quality products as yeah. well I was just, you mentioned landfills, and what do you say to the person out there listening and saying, I put every one of my plastic bottles in the recycling bin, and then yeah. it 
So I'm, I've done my part. Even though I bought it and I'm only using it once, it goes in the recycling. Does it not mm -hmm. get recycled the way yeah. we think it does? I was that person too. I thought I was a good steward of the planet because I didn't send anything to the landfill. I either donated it or I recycled it. Um, but we know nationwide we have a 6% recycling rate. And it's not for lack of people like you and me trying to recycle. It's just that there's so many different variations of plastics, um, the, the idea that some municipalities take something that other municipalities don't, um, and this misnomer that the public thinks that recycling is free. Recycling is a very expensive uh, procedure, and a lot of times it's, it's you lose money on it. So if the, if the community cannot support a recycling program, it's very difficult. Um, but recycle, recyclables, just like anything else, is a commodity, and that fluctuates. So sometimes HDPE is really high, and sometimes it's cardboard that everybody wants. But we've had Carolyn Wara on the, you know, on multiple times talking about when they can dump, when they can get rid of their uh, uh, plastics and their cardboard, and when they can't. I mean, you know. And, during Christmas when everything everybody's ordering online, um, you know, they have overflow of, of mm -hmm. product that they can't get away with because everybody, nobody, it's the market is flooded with, with cardboard. Mm -hmm. And so that happens as well with other recyclables. So we've been talking a lot about, you know, these, mm -hmm. um, the ability to, you know, fill your products and the name of the business is fulfilled mm -hmm. with the filled capital letters. Correct. Paige, maybe this is a great question for you, but there's a rebranding going on. Can you talk a little bit about that rebranding and why um, changes are being made? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. That's such a great question. Uh, you know, ultimately, one of the things that Kimberly and I have come to share is our just recognition that we really feel the weight has been unfairly placed on the consumer. And both of us have, you know, I've been in retail for a really long time and it was actually one of my hesitations stepping back into this industry, but I am somehow tethered to it, I guess, but ultimately <laughs> plan to be here for a while. So um, we just wanna take some of that weight away from the consumers and ultimately we hope that lifestyle, Fulfilled Lifestyle Co. will create a ripple effect that trickles up the ladder. And part of what fulfilled really means to us is not just the idea of like helping you refill your products, which is fun, such a fun play on the word, but it's also very fulfilling to us. It's very important to us that we are staying true to our personal values, to who we are as individuals and how we're building our life. And that ultimately is what led us to this this overarching rebrand of creating a sustainable, fulfilling life for the consumer and recognizing that it's not just about the products that you're buying off of the shelf. It's about a way of life. Sustainability is a way that you're living. It's not just what you're buying, what you're replacing in your home. And really, we want you to have access to things like like resources and community. And, you know, like I mentioned in the beginning of this, Kim is so great at building authentic community. And we really want to hone in on that. And we want to be your partners in sustainability in all aspects of that. So the, the new expanded version of this idea will include a lot of those things. We're relaunching our, our website this week at our, at our launch party, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and it will have tons of resources and we're partnering with really incredible companies that are doing incredible things in terms of sustainability and, and living a more fulfilling life and what that means. So 
you'll see a lot more of that in our in our new chapter. Yes. So there we go. We have our new we have we're have our launch party on Thursday. The community is invited. We're so excited to show everybody um, what this new venture is, what it looks like, this expanded version. It will still, um, it, as Paige mentioned, it's about conscious consumerism and a fulfilled mindset um, and we're here for all of it so if you want to come be part of it obviously this is for you all to see um, the new the new fulfilled um, we're gonna have live music and treats from Rebecca's kitchen um, as well as we now have Hans kombucha on tap ladies if you didn't know that um, and so, so they're good. gonna come and make kombucha cocktails for us and we're gonna have lots of giveaways from um, a lot of the partners that Paige mentioned I, um, so just to be clear, a rebranding doesn't mean you're changing your name. It, it's well, Paige kind of um, let that out a bit. It's it's going to be a very similar <laughs> name. <laughs> I, I did write down some of the things she okay. said. Maybe I caught it. <laughs> yes. So I guess the cat <laughs> is out of the bag. You do not have to come to no. Um, she did mention it. Yes. So we're um, fulfilled lifestyle co. As there of you this go. Thursday. Very mm -hmm. nice. Congratulations. Thank you. We really wanted to lean in this idea where more than just a refill shop, um, it's more than something you can buy off the shelf. It's really about mindset and community, and we're going to be your partners in all of that. And you're still in the same place. Yep, we're still in the same place. Yes, that's a very important thing to say. So Thursday night, you can come see us. We are at the outlets in Park, out the Park City outlets, outlets Park City, right next to Coach. The party is from six to nine. You do have to register because we do have an open bar, so you do need to get on the list. So please register. You can do that on our website, fulfilledutah.com. And you had just mentioned that that website is uh, getting a refresh this week. It is. When can they jump on and see the new the new look? Page. We will be doing a big reveal on Thursday night at the party. So after right. Thursday, be open to the public on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> but you get your first look at, at it on Thursday. So. All right. So again, if you can give the listeners just one more time where you're located and to yes. the website. Fulfilled is at the Outlets Park City. The party is Thursday night from 6 to 9. Please register. You can head online at fulfilledutah.com. All right. We really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Paige Garrity and Kimberly Flores, and you've been listening to Mountain Money. Utah residents can now enjoy four California boutique wines while supporting Nuzzles & Co. Pet Rescue and Adoption. A portion of sales for all Chester wine purchases in Utah will be donated to Nuzzles, including sales of the newly formed Utah Chester Wine Club. Joining us this morning to talk more about the partnerships between Nuzzles & Co. and Russian River Vineyards Chester Wine Label is Josh Stasinos from Nuzzles and Maggie Hiley of Vin 7000. Welcome to Mountain Money. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Josh, do you mind just beginning and giving listeners an overview of Nuzzles & Co. And, and its mission? Absolutely. So Nuzzles & Co. is a pet rescue and adoption up here in Park City. Uh, we have three pillars that we focus on, which is first, adoption and rescue. Uh, second is prevention. So we do a ton of spay neuter and um, just health-related stuff for pets, probably 3,200 surgeries a year for sterilization and then twice that in vaccinations. So it goes a long way to helping animals. And then the third thing we do is helping people. So we have a purple paw program where we help people in domestic violence situations by housing their animals. Uh, we work on the res to do almost free spay neuters and really cheap um, vaccinations. And then we also do pet pantries. 
because um, keeping a, a pet in a home is actually going to keep the shelters empty and then we don't have to save another animal in the first place. A little less expensive on that end versus the other. Very much so. Rescue is very expensive. Has, has there been, people keep talking about there's an increase in, in, in animals that need rescuing. Is that true for Nuzzles and Co? Or are you guys kind of have a number and you can only reach that number? Or how does it work? So there's a big network we kind of can tap into where you see different animals at different shelters and wh where we could pull from because we're pulling from uh, shelters where animals are out of time or we're going down to the Navajo reservation where um, we have a couple of uh, Navajo women who work at a center for us and they collect am or animals are brought to them on a pretty regular basis. Down there, the guess is 250 to 300,000 homeless animals. So in a way, that's almost like... 100,000. Uh, yeah, 250,000 homeless animals down there is the guess. And there's not enough research to give you a, a great accurate number. And then shelters up here, like Summit County, is pretty full on a regular basis. So we do our best to pull um, animals regularly. I feel like dogs were, all the shelters are just full right now. But cats seem to have kind of leveled out a little bit more this last year, which is interesting. Hmm. Maybe all that TNR effort is going it's it's working. That's trap yeah. new to release. So Maggie, let's have you talk a little bit about Russian River Vineyards Chester wine label because it's a little bit more specific about why this wine label is now um, a partner with with Nozzles and Co. Yeah, absolutely. So Chester is a wine brand from w Russian River Vineyards, located in Sonoma County, California. It's a tribute wine to Chester, who was a rescue dog and became the winery dog. So Chester was very fondly known for greeting guests, accompanying them on tours. And so um, when Chester passed, the winery decided to create a label in his honor. And so Chester Wines, like Chester, is meant to embody the spirit of living for adventure and maybe taking life a little less seriously. Not, not a bad philosophy. <laughs> yeah, right. That's so, I love it. Uh, I can just picture Chester. Um, so how did the partnership begin and who contacted who? What a great idea. Go ahead, Maggie. <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, so the team at Russian River Vineyards uh, did indeed reach out to Nuzzles. I had mentioned that uh, Russian River Vineyards is based in Sonoma County. So in Sonoma County, they work with the local animal rescue and adoption group there called Dogwood. Um, and so this was something that was an intrinsic part of the Chester brand is giving back to help support animal rescue and adoption. There are um, five wines in the Chester lineup and one of them, which is a Pinot Noir, we uh, brought into Utah stores a little over a year and a half ago. It gained traction incredibly quickly. And so Russian River Vineyards said, let's do a similar program in Utah um, and be able to give back on more of a local level. And so that's when we reached out to the team at Nuzzles & Co and um, put together a partnership. The, the main part of it is a give back program that a portion of all Utah sales gets donated to Nuzzles & Co. And so that would be sales off of the Chester wines that are in stores, which are now Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, um, the Chester wines that Utahns can buy through the special order system, which is a sparkling and a red blend. And then we also at the Nuzzles Gala in August introduced the Chester Utah Wine Club 
um, quarterly shipments of four bottles of wine. And so those sales also contribute back to Nuzzles. So I do want to, you know, dip in a little bit to what you had said, because as we're all familiar, Utah liquor laws aren't necessarily straightforward. <laughs> and you had mentioned that, you know, you had introduced or brought into the Utah stores a Pinot Noir to start. How, how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> not quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, uh, it's not the easiest thing to accomplish, but twice a year, the state of Utah, the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services, conducts a review of all the alcohol in their stores and um, what's selling, what's not. They decide what items to delist and what items to bring in. And so it's part of a formal process each year. And we proposed the Pinot Noir um, last spring, actually. And uh, they brought it in. Um, they're very happy with it. It's been selling really well. And so this period that's just happening right now because of the success of the Chester Pinot Noir, they actually just um, purchased Chester Chardonnay that's starting to roll out into stores now as well. What, what's the price point of Chester and the Pinot, all of the... Yeah, so the Chardonnay, which is just hitting stores now, is nineteen ninety nine, And the Pinot Noir, we've been promoting down to twenty four ninety nine throughout the past year, and it's going to permanently go to twenty four ninety nine this Saturday. Oh. So... <laughs> at, the, at, at the wine stores, at, at yeah. down, down yeah. below us, where we are now, Sweet and... Yeah, Sweet Alley, Sweet Alley won't have them. This is a little smaller store, but the Snow Creek store um, over by the market has all the Chester wines there. And then let's talk a little bit about the Chester Wine Club. How does that work? Yeah, so this is, this is super exciting. We were actually on about a year ago when we first introduced mm -hmm. wine clubs in Utah. So um, we're absolutely delighted that through Venn 7,000 wine lovers in Utah can join select wine clubs in the state. It's a real convenient and fun way to receive regular wine shipments with free shipping to whatever Utah State Liquor Store you choose. And um, like I had mentioned at the Nuzzles Gala in August, we introduced a Chester, Utah wine club. And so this is four bottles of Chester wines that get shipped quarterly. It's $99 per shipment. And um, actually the inaugural shipments are arriving this week to all of the um, people who signed up at the gala and outside of that to be part of the wine club. So we're excited. Hooray. It's a big week. And, cool. and again, all of the, those four bottles, so each of those kind of box, boxes or shipments, those four bottles of Chester wines, a percentage then goes to Nuzzles & Co. Correct. And with the wine club, there's even a, a different situation. We get $25 for every wine club uh, sign up. All so, right. um, yeah, I mean, you think about doing a marriage with the things that you love and adult beverages and rescue mm -hmm. go hand in hand. For, for some reason, they work perfectly together. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Is, this, is the label a, a picture of Chester? I'm just it's, curious. It sure is. Um, Chester um, just had this vivaciousness and uh, enthusiasm for life. And um, I've seen the real photos of Chester. He was very striking with one brown eye and one blue eye. And so the labels on the bottle are an illustration of Chester with, you know, the adorable little head tilt and the one blue eye and the one brown eye. What's pretty cool about that is a lot of the dogs we get from the Navajo reservation have one blue eye and one brown eye. So it's sort of amazing. The other really cool thing about the bottles is the top of the bottle, the, the, the screw top 
uh, or cork is a paw. So when you walk in the liquor store and just see the wine tops, look for the paws. And when you see a, a dog paw, that's the wine you want to oh, buy. I love that. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about this partnership from Nuzzle's side. You know, was there any um, trepidation as far as going into a partnership like this? You know, what did you do as far as your due diligence when they contacted you and said, yes, we'd like to just give you money? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, every partnership, you want to make sure that there's a a good fit for both parties. And uh, I mean, these guys are supporting other rescues. Uh, Chester was a rescue. So it it was pretty evident really quickly that it made sense to us. Uh, Most of our big events, especially our gala, we serve alcohol. So um, it's not something we're afraid to embrace on that side of things as well. And um, with regard to this, just to reconfirm, you are the only beneficiary in Utah of Chester Wine Brands. And so they may have similar relationships in other states states. with other rescue organizations? Correct. Yeah, it's not not a widely distributed wine. Um, It's a very craft, um, artisanal wine. And so the main... Uh, the main places that it sells is in uh, Sonoma County, where the winery is, and then here in Utah. Oh. So we're very we're very fortunate and um, special that we get to have it here. How many bottles? How, how much are they producing a year? Do you know, or is that how you say, it? or cases, or? Oh yeah, you can measure either way. Um, it's quite small. Um, Actually, one of the reasons why that pricing is so great in Utah for the wines that you asked is because uh, one little known uh, secret of the Utah DABS is they take a significantly reduced markup on small production wines. And so like that Chester Pinot Noir, that's going to be $24.99 starting on Saturday, is $34.99 if you buy it direct from the winery. That is absolutely a little point away. Yeah, I know, I know. It surprises everybody. It worked in our favor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just have about 20 seconds left. Tell people again where they can find out more about Nuzzles & Co. as well as the Chester Wine Club. Uh, Nuzzlesandco.org is our website. Uh, We'll be doing a brewery night at Immigration. You can find more on our website. And we'll be having a party for LibPC, get PC at Trove Gallery here on Main Street uh, that day. Fantastic. And yep. Maggie? And Vin7000.com is uh, where you can find information on Chester Wines in Utah. And if you go to the club's uh, section, you'll see information on the Chester Utah Wine Club. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Mountain Money. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. If you like Mountain Money, let us know. Please leave a review.